Hey guys, this is Rob. We're uh, with the Rightish Podcast, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Saravia. Dr. Saravia, how are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, trying to make it through this this quarantine um, yep. and and all the coronavirus stuff. But uh, tell tell us a little bit about yourself. What kind of work you do? Uh, what got you interested? Yeah. So thank you very much for having me. Uh, so I am a professor of economics, as you know, at, at Mercer University. And um, I, I essentially view my, my job as doing three different things, right? So, so the first thing is teaching. Um, I, I teach classes in uh, at principles of, of economics, either micro or macroeconomics. Uh, but then my two favorite courses are uh, in the upper level, which are international economics is, is one of, of them. And the other one is the moral foundations of capitalism. Um, I love those two because in international economics, I can I can show to students the importance of uh, trade and how trade uh, benefits societies and individuals. And the more barriers you impose to trade, uh, the less those societies and individuals uh, benefit, right? And so it's, it's very important, especially this day and age in which tariffs have become popular again. Mm-hmm. So love that class uh and the other one is uh, perhaps the cornerstone of what i do in terms of teaching the moral foundations of capitalism where we make the case not only that capitalism has able to uh develop uh, again societies and individuals massively uh over the last you know 100 200 years um lifted so many people out of poverty so we make the utilitarian case for free markets but we also make the moral case for free markets, uh, and we can get into that later on if you want. Uh, but you know that's kind of the, the cornerstone teaching activity that I do. So that's so that that's that's the first thing I do uh, teaching. Uh, the other one is of course research, and I spend uh, I would say probably something between sixty and seventy percent of my time doing research. Um, which is what we professors are supposed to do. Uh, so I, I work on different ideas uh, of political economy, institutional economics, and uh, and I try to pop, to publish those those ideas. That's um, yeah, that that's what we do in terms of research. Uh, it gets complicated because once you once you present or once you publish something, then you gotta go and present it, and so there's a lot of traveling involved. And I do you know media interviews as well. Uh, CNN, for example, has me like every couple of weeks uh, talking about new findings, and so it's it's not only about sitting down and research and, and, and writing, but also presenting and then disseminating those results. And so research is is the other thing. And and the third thing that I that I do is I'm a, a director of the Center for the Study of Economics and Liberty, um, which is a center that tries to promote. Uh, you know, a, a serious and careful discussion about the benefits of free markets uh, on campus at Mercer University, but also um, nationally. And um, that involves uh, a lot of work and, and, and time with, uh, you know, administrative work uh, with other professors. Uh, we put together research for uh, undergrad students. We travel with students to present conferences. We have a program for high school teachers where we teach them to teach good economics in, in high school. Uh, we bring guests, guests to speakers, as you know. Uh, and so 
those are kind of the three pillars of, of my work. Um, you know, it's typically very busy, <laughs> a very busy day trying to combine those three things. Uh, but uh, I, th- I think I think we're managing uh, decently for the time being. That's really, really cool. I think I remember um, the, the first time I saw you or the first time I heard of you was, uh, I think, the inequality debate that you did, uh, I think, last year. Yeah. And it was so amazing to hear, like, you know, on a college campus, because I was a freshman. I didn't know the environment. I didn't know that there were people who were willing to, like, you know, openly speak about these things. I was like, oh, my gosh, like, they're actually talking about this. Like, it's not just, you know, like, talking about like white privilege or, or something like that. Like, it was, like, actual, like, you know, real hardcore um, economic policy and, and, you know, promoting economic freedom. And I think it was really phenomenal to hear about that and uh, hearing about all your work you've been doing. And I'm curious, like, like what, what kind of, um, like, who, who are some of the figures uh, in the economic community or even outside the economic community uh, who, you, who you look up to and yeah. who, who have inspired you to, to take this stance? Yeah, well, first of all, let me say thank you very much for that. Uh, we spent a lot of time organizing uh, events on campus. And uh, what we want, of course, is to have the biggest impact uh, possible. So the fact that you attended, that it meant something to you, that you uh, saw uh, people talking about stuff that uh, perhaps are, you know, it's prohibited in, in many campuses across the nation, uh, is uh, definitely very rewarding uh, for us. Uh, that particular debate that you mentioned, the, partic- the debate on social justice, uh, you know, it took a lot of preparation and it took a lot of convincing uh, to, because uh, convincing the, the other professor to, to, to do the debate um, with me. Um, it, it's amazing how, you know, pr- professors spend a lot of time preparing lectures and go and, and, and teach on a regular basis. But then when you ask them to speak about particular difficult topics, uh, it's, it's very difficult to to have them volunteer. And, and so with debates, what I found is that it's, it takes even more time to convince other people to debate you than, um, than the preparation of the debate itself. Uh, but anyway, so thank you very much for that. And, and hopefully we made an impact on other students as well. Um, in terms of figures, um, you know, boy, that's... that's um, it's a difficult question. Uh, the, the, of course, so many. I'm, uh, uh, you know, when you do a PhD, you are learning about what other PhDs or what other economies have done, and you do that for five years. So you learn about a lot of people, and and many have an influence on you on the way you write and the kind of things you write. So I would say, uh, just to give you an idea, uh, probably my most important. Uh, you know, the uh, economies that, that influenced me were uh, uh, Frederick Hayek, uh, of course, Nobel Prize in Economics, uh, his professor, von Mises, uh, Ayn Rand, uh, although she was not an economist, she was a philosopher, but uh, I, th- I think she wrote uh, a lot of good economics in her books. So Ayn Rand became very influential later on in my career. But I would say first Hayek and, and, and Mises, uh, Rothbard, of course, uh, you know, a lot of people from the from the Austrian uh, school of thought. Um, I, I read a lot about Israel Kirchner, Karl Menger, and so on. Mm. Um, more contemporary, I would say. You know, people that I that I 
uh, engage a lot in conversation, communication. Sometimes we tweet of you know each other and an uh, email. Uh, you know Brian Kaplan, uh, mm, who was yeah. on campus. We brought him to talk about um, what did he do? Did he do immigration? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so open borders. Uh, so Brian Kaplan is, uh, is is somebody that I'm always reading. Um, Tyler Cowan. Um, uh, we didn't bring him yet, but I'm hoping to, to do so. Brian, uh, Tyler Cowan, a professor at, uh, at George Mason as well. Uh, Bob Lawson, uh, the mm. author of the Economic Freedom Index. I did a lot of work with the, uh, with the Index of Economic Freedom. Mm. And, um, and, and to have Bob Lawson, the author, uh, right, uh, at, on campus speaking about that was great. So oh, yeah. that, was such a cool uh, that gives you an idea, yeah. That was such a cool event. I just wanted to say that was really cool. I had a great time with that one too, for sure. Yeah, the Socialism Sucks uh, mm-hmm. book, right? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was really fun. That was a cool presentation. He seemed like a really nice guy. Very nice guy. Um, good friend, so yeah. Yeah. I know, uh, so um, just circling back to what you, you brought up earlier, so you were talking about the Austrian School of Economics. Could you give, a, a, if possible, kind of a description of what that is and what separates that from uh, different schools of thought? Yeah, so, you know, the Austrian School of Economics is kind of seen as heterodox. Uh, so if you think of the economic science, you would say that the orthodox way of thinking is kind of the classical view, Chicago-style economics. Um, and, and the Austrian is probably a little bit less mainstream. Uh, so I, essentially, the Austrian economics is about... You know, methodological individualism, right? So the idea that individuals are the ones that can uh, identify cost and benefits of particular actions, and therefore they are the only ones that know how to determine the optimal course of action, mm. right? So uh, in, in economics, we always talk about you know societies do this, or you know the government should implement this policy, and so on and so forth. So what the Austrian school will of thought would, would tell you is, you know, all of those are lies. There are a bunch of lies because uh, there's nobody walking down the street by the name government or by the name society. Right. You know, coll- the collectives don't think, really. The only ones that think are the individuals. The only ones that can assess benefits and costs uh, that apply to themselves are individuals. Uh, mm-hmm. So what happens when you, when you read on the news that the government did something or such and such corporation decided to launch a new product, so what really happened was that a lot of people got together and kind of uh, per- perhaps voted or, or, or kind of tried to get to a consensus. But each individual is trying to uh, weigh the you know, benefits and costs of their particular vote or their particular opinion. So at the end of the day, individuals are the ones that make um, uh, choices. And so the Austrian economics uh, or the Austrian School of Thought uh, emphasizes that a lot more than the mainstream view. Um, the other one, the, the other thing that I really like about Austrian economics, and the, the, I think it's a massive contribution, is this idea of uh, the calculation problem. I don't know if you've heard about this. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the calculation problem, Frederick Hayek came, came up with this idea. Uh, so, so what this is, is uh, he says, look, um, when you're trying to assign or allocate resources in society, 
uh, you know, there are many different moving parts, right? So how do we decide what we produce in the United States, for example? You know, what do we do? Do we do movies in Hollywood, right? Do we do financial services, or do we cultivate tomatoes, or do what do we do? Um, and 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 so that question is very difficult to answer. The other question is, well, who's going to produce these things? And and the third question would be, for whom? Yeah. Mm. Um, when, when you're thinking about those questions, you realize the magnitude of the problem. You start realizing that it's very difficult to calculate a solution. Right. Right. So, so to say, okay, you know, so, so, so these guys have such, such and such productivity and such and such cost. Therefore, these guys should become movie producers and these guys should become tomato producers and so on and so forth. So it's, you don't have the information, essentially. Right. If you're trying to plan this at an aggregate level, if you are, say, say a benevolent dictator, uh, <laughs> you know, emphasis on benevolent, right? So I really want to do the good for society, right? So let me see if, if I can, you know, calculate the economic problem and, and tell society what to do. And, and remember, I'm benevolent. I'm, I'm really aiming for, for, for the best. So, so the... The, the Austrian uh, school of thought will tell you, well, that's an impossible task because this benevolent dictator will never have all of the information available. And therefore, mm. it, it's impossible. It will always make a mistake. The best thing to do is to just let the individuals decide for themselves what they would want to do, right? And, and, and therefore, he concluded, uh, uh, Max Weber, they concluded that socialism was impossible because socialism is essentially trying to answer that, right? To generate that economic calculation. So it's a bureau of bureaucrats, or uh, you know, that trying to decide what the country should produce, how many pairs of shoes, how many guitars, how many computers, right? Because they have this supposed this idea of what is good for society. Um, and so one of the most important contributions of the Austrian school of thought is. That's not going to work. The economic calculation is not going to work because we don't have the information. The information is decentralized, and therefore you conclude that socialism is is a bad idea, and and you let uh, free markets operate. So because of that, I am. Um, there are probably some other technical things that I may have. Uh, I may not agree with Austrian economics, but I I would probably align myself in that uh, with that school. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard too much about like the differences between the schools and, and really in Austrian economics. So I'm, I'm glad that you were able to go in, in depth the way you did. Uh, yeah. now, now we brought up socialism for a second and I think we should really talk about that for, for a bit because I mean you've taken a very strong stance against socialism and I would personally take the same kind of stance. Uh, do you feel like, like right now um, uh, capitalism is at risk and our liberties are at risk because of this idea of socialism? I, I, I think so. Um, you know, it, it, it's a complicated proposition, right? So uh, you're probably aware of how much millennials dislike capitalism and kind of favor uh, socialism, right? So there's this famous 2016 Harvard's, Harvard survey, right, showed that only 42% of millennials favor, favor capitalism, which is 
really strange like only 42% of millennials like less than half favor capitalism or you know if you know a little bit of history you know that capitalism has lifted so many people out of poverty has transformed the world in ways that we couldn't imagine right uh, but you only have less than 50% of support for it and in fact I think it was 33% of millennials in that same survey declared themselves socialists. Wow. When, when socialism has killed so many people, right? It's, it's, a, it's a disaster, not only uh, morally, but empirically. Like, if you look at countries like Venezuela, you look at countries like Cuba, you look at, you look at the former Soviet Union, um, North Korea. So, you know, it's, it's massive disaster. And, and 33% of them declare themselves socialists. Um, so there is another one. I think there is a Gallup survey in 2015, 70% of millennials considering uh, seriously voting for a socialist candidate. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so when you, when you start looking at this data, you have reasons to worry because these are our young people, you know, the ones that are going to be the leaders of the future, and, and they have this... Uh, this view uh, that uh, capitalism is, is, is bad and socialism is good. So if we are not vigilant of, uh, of ideas, then, you know, it's, it's problematic, it's, it's, it's dangerous. You know, I always use the example of Germany in my, in my courses or when I'm speaking out there. So you see, up to World War Two, World War One, really, up to World War One, 1914, Germany had more Nobel Prize winners than the U.S. and the U.K. combined. Wow. Okay, it had the best universities in the world. Uh, most of the best arts and culture came from Germany. It was called the Athens of the modern world. You know, Goethe, Beethoven, Max Planck, Einstein. Yeah. Germany had the most advanced. Uh, universities, most advanced country in the world, and what happened to it? It succumbed to the most barbaric dictatorship, criminal and, you know, um, Nazism uh, dictatorship that you can imagine. So what happened, you know, to the best country in the world where the most, most of the smart people were, producing most of the important science and art, and all of a sudden, you know, you are succumbed to this barbaric dictatorship. So if it happened to them, it, it can happen to us. Right. Uh, so if we're not vigilant of ideas, if we are not taking ideas seriously, if we don't revise history, if we don't permanently try to continue to understand the benefits and the dangers of particular courses of action, then, um, then, then we're fragile, then we are vulnerable. Uh, to these things happening. Uh, Argentina is another example. Among the wealthiest countries in the world at the beginning of the 20th century. So uh, nobody, not a lot of people know this, but Argentina, the GDP per capita was higher than Italy, Japan, Canada. Wow. Yeah, at the beginning of the 20th century. And then what happened? Again, the ideas of redistribution, the ideas of socialism, there was a president that came to power by the name Domingo Perón. And everything went down the drain from that point onwards. And now Argentina is, is a very impoverished country. Um, so if it happened to Germany, if it happened to Argentina, Cuba, Cuba had the you know, GDP per capita that was four times that of, the, of Spain uh, before the revolution. And so 
I think it's important, and I think uh, that's why I am so passionate about, uh, um, you know, providing an environment in which we can discuss these issues, uh, talk about these ideas. I think it's fundamental. For sure. And, and uh, I like the example you brought up with, with Germany, especially because with Germany, it, with East and West Germany, and, and also with North and South Korea, it almost gives you like a perfect scenario to compare and contrast like one system versus another. Uh, right. So, I, I mean, an ob- the, the, the historical uh, uh, results are, are obvious, right? With yep. um, the, the communist or socialist sides being so much um, less able to produce for their people. Uh, but we, we talked about, we brought up uh, Latin America, and I want to ask, I know you've done some uh, work in that area, and, and I want to ask, uh, so, I, I mean, and, and also talking to guys like uh, Andres, who came on campus and talked about uh, Venezuela and everything, and, and a lot of their textbooks, uh, they're actually being taught like like socialist and Marxist um, beliefs, and, and I want to ask, like, you know, if there's a certain reason behind that, or if, if it's like more of like a top-down thing, or if, if you know, perhaps... Maybe for them, they believe that capitalism doesn't work. So are you talking about like uh, school textbooks? Yeah, yeah. Like Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's very interesting. Um, I uh, actually have done work on that. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, these papers, but um, uh, Clara Mengolini and Robert Reagan and myself, we uh, worked on a paper that looked at socialist indoctrination in... Uh, uh, textbooks in Venezuela, mm. so elementary school textbooks in Venezuela. So what we did is we collected uh, textbooks from elementary school, first grade to fifth grade, and we analyzed them, uh, we read them all, we coded uh, different passages, and then we even did a uh, numerical uh, analysis of them, meaning a text mining. Right, so we were, we were, were an algorithm, a computer is looking for particular words, so it's not our, you know, opinion of the word or the way we understand the word, but it's, it's a more objective way of, of analyzing text. And we did that and compared that with uh, textbooks for the same uh, grades, first to fifth, before President Chavez, so before socialism was established in Venezuela. Uh, the differences are striking. Uh, definitely, you see a lot of socialist indoctrination, a lot of emphasis on redistribution. It's all about redistribution with the socialists. I mean, it's 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 unbelievable. So, so there is this 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 uh, 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 production, uh, this this output, and uh, it doesn't matter how we came up with the output. It do, it doesn't matter how we produced it. Uh, who produced it, all it matters now is that it is here and we get to redistribute it. So mm-hmm. we get to give it to whoever we believe have more needs or, you know, the the, the, the poor and, and the disadvantaged and so on and so forth. We redistribute the pie and and that's, and we're good and we're good and, and we're morally good for that. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem is that they never ask, well, how do you produce that output in the first place? How did you come up with that wealth that now you can redistribute? And if you ask yourself that question, you know, inevitably you come up with the idea that in order to produce that, you need incentives. Uh, Nobody is going to go and wake up five in the morning and try to work hard and produce something 
if you you know if that person doesn't see the rewards for it right right incentives matter so if if you produce all of this wealth and now that the wealth exists here comes the socialist government decides okay thank you very much now we get to I, I get to redistribute this then that person the next day is not going to wake up at five in the morning just say well why do I care right um, and, you know what why would I bother so much if all they're going to do is once I produce this wealth is they're going to redistribute it. Uh, the way I picture this is you go, uh, you know, after a day of hard work, you go to a window to collect your check, right? So again, I worked uh, for eight hours, you, you know, I need my pay and the person gives you your pay and it says, okay, now go to the window number two. And in window number two, the lady says, well, okay, uh, give me your check. We're going to redistribute it now. Right. So if that happens to you day after day, then you're not going to have incentives to wake up and produce. And so what happens is with socialist societies is that eventually there is no more uh, wealth or this economic pie to redistribute because nobody produces it. Mm. And that is what leads to poverty. So uh, what we saw in these school textbooks is that they all assumed that the pie was there somehow magically that the output was there and that all that matter was how we redistribute, how fairly we redistribute this, this economic pie. Mm. And, um, and, and therefore kids uh, you know, are growing up with this idea that it's all about redistribution and it's never about production, right? So it's never about incentives, it's never about hard work, it's, it's never about work ethics. Uh, and that I think it's very dangerous. So we did that for Venezuela, mm. and now we have the project to do the same thing for Argentina. Uh, but I can tell you, uh, I'm from Latin America, and uh, you know this is true for many countries in Latin America. Wow. Um, so the school textbooks are plagued by, um, by by these ideas. But you know, uh, it's. It, you know, it's it's we're, we're seeing a little bit of that in the U.S. To be honest, so so you would say perhaps in, in perhaps in some of our textbooks, maybe we would have some of that, like in the uh, United States. You think? You know, I, I haven't looked at specifically, and and, and um, I haven't looked uh, at, at the particular textbooks, but I spoke to teachers, hmm. and and I know. Um, and I know that there is a there is an emphasis on um, again on, on on redistribution on the underprivileged. There is an emphasis on uh, denouncing you know privilege. There is an emphasis on inequality. Inequality, for some reason, bothers a lot of people. I shouldn't. Maybe there are reasons why, but but, hmm. but it shouldn't be the main issue. Uh, but um, inequality seems to be the thing, and of course, when when you talk about inequality, then in, in, immediately you talk about how to repair it or how to fix it, and that goes back to redistribution. So, right, and, and I think one of the things with inequality that people don't understand, you talked about the the pie, and and a lot of people yeah. who who talk the the inequality thing uh, will mention how or they, they assume rather that. Number one, that you you get a stake in that pie and in, in, in other people's earnings, and also that the pie is a fixed size and it doesn't grow. Right. And that's one of the big things that I read in your article 
which was that it grows in a way which everybody can get every, everyone can be better off right and i think that's one of the one of the fallacies of of that kind of thinking um but you do a lot of really good research on inequality and yeah. w- w- like what do you think draws people so much to that idea so i do a lot of, of work on inequality because i think that it's the wrong uh, thing to concentrate on is is the wrong idea to focus on. Uh, I, inequality really doesn't matter, or it shouldn't matter, right? So why do you care if Bill Gates has a lot more money than you, if you are increasing your income year after year, right? right. So why do we get concerned with relative poverty when what really matters is absolute poverty? So the way I, I, I try to think about this is, you know, think about two societies. There's society A and society B. Uh, you know, society B um, is very equal, right? So everybody has exactly the same income. So just for the sake of doing an exercise, suppose that everybody in society B has $100, okay? So perfect equality. Now go to society A. Now society A is very unequal. Uh, in society A, there are some people that have $100, there are some people that have $300, but there are some people that have $3 billion. Hmm. Okay? It's very unequal. Um, which society would you prefer? So in, in society B, everybody is equal but poor. In society A, you have more wealth, uh, you know, a lot more people are wealthier, but there is inequality, mm-hmm. right? So if your answer is, I prefer society A, obviously, because there is, I, I'm wealthier, the chances that I'm wealthier are higher, mm-hmm. um, then inequality is not the problem. The, well, the problem, the problem, the real problem is poverty. Right. So we, so we don't want poor, poor people, we don't want to have poverty. But who cares if some people have more than others, right? And, and I think if you, you, you mentioned that you read my paper on Pope Francis. I think one of the mistakes that Pope Francis makes is that he focuses on that idea of inequality, of relative poverty. You know, for him, it's, it's an outrage that some people have so much money and some others have so little. He doesn't seem to understand that the people that have little had even less, you know, uh, 40, 50, 100 years ago. Hmm. So we want to lift people out of poverty. We don't really want to make people equal or have the same uh, amount of money or, or, or resources. And if you care about poverty, well, then, you know, these are good times because we have lifted so many people out of poverty. In 1990, the poverty rate, according to the World Bank, uh, $1.90 a day. In 1990, the poverty rate was 40%. So 40% of the population in this planet was living below $1.90. 40%. Today, that is like 10% or even less. And by 2030, it's probably going to go down to zero. Nobody in the world will be living with less than $1.90 a day. Mm-hmm. So if what you care is poverty, these are good times. These are times to celebrate, right? Infant mortality has plummeted all over the world. You think of Africa, right? So when we think infant mortality, everybody immediately thinks Africa. Well, you know, 
infant mortality in Africa now is the same as infant mortality, that, uh, the rate of infant mortality that Europe had in, in, in the 1960s. So, wow. you know, yes, so, but, but, but this is not in the news. This is what I mentioned in my, in my debate. You know, this should be in the news every day. We have lifted so many people out of poverty. And I don't know, it's like we don't see it or we don't want to see it. But what we want to see is inequality. That doesn't make sense to me. Right. Right. And it seems like uh, inequality, I mean, would would end up being the result of a free society where people get to make different decisions. So, I right. mean, at, at least at some level. And also in your article, you talk about the idea of, of socially beneficial versus socially harmful inequality. And, uh-huh. and some of the inequality that we, we see is just a result of people who work hard, who apply themselves and, and pick something that they're really good at and they end up getting ahead. And some of it might be the result of, of tariffs and subsidies, which inherently favor one group or another. And that's the government's hand in driving that inequality. And I'm not a fan of, of um, protectionist trade policy. I've had conversations with my parents and with my, uh, my, my um, uh, classmates about it. And I'm sure you're, you're with me there. Uh, but, you, you know, I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, we really should focus on poverty. And it really is a shame that we're not talking more about the amazing, the amazing strides yeah. we've made. Like, like I didn't know that about the infant mortality stat. That that was phenomenal. I, I had no idea that was even, even there. Like, yeah, yeah, no. And 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 and, and I keep keep going. I mean, if if you look at um, life expectancy, right? So where it used to be um, thirty years old, you, then then it went up to forty, fifty. Now we can expect to live about eighty-two years uh, in average. So, you know, that gives you more time to enjoy life, to enjoy, enjoy your grandkids. I mean, it's, it's just amazing what we have achieved. Uh, so you pick any, any human development indicator and you will see tremendous Im- improvements. Um, you know, hunger, crime, uh, crime rates have gone down, plummeted, really. So um, it's, it's, it's really a, a good time to be alive. Uh, for sure, and it's gonna get even better. It's gonna get only better, you know, with cars that drive themselves, with drones that bring you your food to your doorstep, uh, which is gonna save us money, it's gonna save us time. Uh, you know, we're probably gonna end up working less, you know, only four days and then three days because we're gonna have more robots doing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, this is not the result of that benevolent dictator I was talking about before, right? There's no benevolent dictator coming up with all of these ideas. These are entrepreneurs. These are companies that are waking up early in the morning uh, to come up with ideas because they want to make money. Right. And and so incentives again uh, matter tremendously. Uh, let me just say briefly uh, something about you mentioned the socially beneficial and socially harmful and harmful yeah, inequalities. Mm-hmm. Um, so inequality doesn't matter, um, but inequality doesn't matter as long as I perceive that the game is not rigged. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, so if I perceive that the game is rigged, that there is chronic capitalism, for example. Right. right so that some companies, companies are in bed with the government and they receive favor, favorable treatment. Uh, and, and because of that, they are getting rich. Then, yes, you know, uh, that type of inequality um, should uh, make us angry and, 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 and we need to change that and then we need to put those people in jail, in fact. 
Um, so if we're not all equal under the law, uh, if, we're, if we receive unequal treatment, that's a harmful inequality. But um, aside from that, and in particular in the United States, you know, where the institutions work a lot better than in many other countries, the other inequalities that we see are inequalities of um, just, you know, being different. Some people work harder, some people are smarter, some people are luckier, you know, luck matters as well. And, 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 and if you don't see that it's rigged, then the people will, you know, the population will accept it more. Uh, one thing that is interesting to me is, for example, with sports, right? We don't seem to be bothered about inequality in sports. You know, we understand that some teams or some athletes win, you know, more times than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we accept it. I mean, I don't know a lot about basketball, but it seems to me that the Lakers, for example, are a very good team. Uh, but nobody's booing the Lakers because of inequality, you know. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, or Roger Federer, right? Roger Federer keeps winning uh, even at, this, at the age he is. And, uh, uh, but nobody's out there trying to say, hey, you know, Roger Federer gives some tournaments to the lesser guy. Right. Um, so, but, but that's precisely because we understand that the game is not rigged. So if, if we're able to, to do the same for society, uh, then I think we're going to have less and less resistance to this idea of letting people along and let the market forces determine where we all end up. Right. And I, I think we, that ties in really well with, with the idea of social justice. So this, this concept that there are differences and disparities between groups of people and that uh, many people would assume that it's because of uh, d- discrimination or, or racism or sexism, when in reality it, it could very well be the culmination of a lot of things and in many cases choices of individuals. So I was just reading uh, Thomas Sowell's Discrimination and Disparities before we were we were talking, mm-hmm. and uh, w- one of the most phenomenal things that you see is this unsorting and sorting of people. People will naturally like you know kind of group up and and um, and there are a lot of things that actually influence. Um, I guess economic outcome, so like mm-hmm. you know culture, uh, even geography. I think it was really interesting to note that I think it had to be twelve uh, percent of the world's like land area is, is in the temporal zone on Earth, and yet twenty three percent of the population lives there, and that's where fifty one percent of the world's GDP is, and that's just geography, right? right? So the you know the assumption that that is because people are just being mean to each other just isn't doesn't necessarily hold up to greater scrutiny. That, that is correct, yes, yes. Um, social justice is another uh, one of those topics that I, uh, I, um, I think a lot about. And, um, you know, we did uh, uh, another debate. Um, but we did a debate on poverty, then we did a debate on social justice. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's a misleading concept. It's, um, it's, it's really dangerous. Uh, because it's this idea that uh, justice in the classical sense, which is, you know, to each what each deserves, um, that the justice needs to favor uh, some groups of people, regardless of, of whether they deserve it or not. So, um, you know, the United Nations, I think, uh, defines this as, as the, the just, quote-unquote, the just and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth. Again, the distribution idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with that definition is that there is nothing compassionate about that 
redistribution because it's all done through taxes. And, and taxes are forced, right? right? I mean, try not to pay taxes and see what happens. You go to jail. Uh, and if you say, well, I don't want to go to jail, then the gun comes out. And, and literally, they put a gun on your head and, and you go to jail because you're not paying your taxes. So there is nothing really compassionate about this idea of, of social justice. It's done through uh, force. And because, um, you know, a different thing is to tell people, hey, you know, would you find it in your heart to donate for this cause or to, or to give some people on the street some money, you know, as a voluntary action? Yeah, absolutely no problem with that. Uh, but, but the idea of social justice is the forced redistribution. And so um, um, I, think, I think that is, is dangerous, uh, I, uh, you know, because it's, it's immoral in the sense that it forces us to do things that perhaps we may not want to do. But then the other problem with it is that once you establish that concept, once you impose it on society, right, social justice is a thing, then it pays to become a victim, right? Right. Because then, if, if you're a, somehow a victim of your circumstances, then social justice will take care of you. Social justice will force other people to redistribute their wealth with you. Mm-hmm. So, it's this old Marxist idea, yeah? yeah. Uh, from each according to their abilities, to each according to their needs. Right. So, the, what you need, or, or what you have to do in order to get something is to show that you have needs. Mm. Yeah, that's what pays now. You know, the judge will remove the blindfold, right? So, justice will not be blind anymore. And as long as you convince the judge that you need, then you're going to get stuff. So, it pays to be a victim. Mm. And, and, and a lot of our young people fall prey of this idea and and we develop a culture of victimhood and i think it's so dangerous it's so incredibly dangerous because it diminishes diminishes you as a human being it restricts your potential it eliminates the the drive um uh, you know to produce things to be to become uh somebody and um you know, and it, it could really destroy dreams and, 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 and values that you had as a kid. You know, when you were dreaming, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be an NBA player. You know, when you realize that social justice exists, we'll say, okay, well, then it's easy to just become a victim. So I, I, it's very, very dangerous. Right. When you lose the uh, individual, the, the sanctity of the individual, you lose you lose everyone, really. So, I mean, you're definitely right. It, it, it crushes people. And when, when you create group rights, you also create group responsibilities. And so it's, it's almost as if like it's all out of your control and that you're, you're merely some kind of like, like part, of a, part of a grand system which, which um, really your importance is negligible. Uh, so I, I agree with you in, in that regard. We need to hold on to the individualist aspect of the West. That's one of the most important things that we ever had. Uh, yeah. So we, we, we've talked about a lot of the, the, the bad ideas and the uh, mistakes made by a lot, of, um, a lot of people in analyzing these broader issues. Uh, so, so just to go back, um, what should be the, the real goals of an economic system and how does capitalism help us reach those? 
So the real goal is to continue to improve our lives, of course, to, to continue to improve um, our living standards. Um, and, you know, that is true for you and me uh, in the sense that, you know, we already have a, a, a pretty good life, um, you know, uh, here in the United States, we have education, we, we have means of, of doing things, we have computers, we have technology, but, you know, it can get better. And, and that's, that's an important goal. But I think it's even a, a more important goal for people that don't have all of this yet. Yeah, so if you go back to Central America or Southeast Asia, where you still see a lot of pockets of poverty, even China. You know, China has been growing so much and has lifted so many people above, but still there are some pockets, some cities, some provinces in which um, people continue to suffer. And, and so the goal is to continue to improve their lives uh, you know, uh, or, or at least for them to have the means to improve their lives themselves. Mm. So, yeah, that that might actually be better. Um, so that's the goal. That's the goal. Uh, you, from a utilitarian perspective, uh, from a moral perspective, I think the goal is to continue to expand uh, our abilities to develop as individuals. Uh, in one word, our freedoms. Uh, so our freedom to think uh, the way we want to think, our freedom to pursue our our goals and dreams, to develop our life projects. Um, that is, uh, I think, the moral the moral goal. And and capitalism helps us do that because uh, when we are alone to decide, uh, you know, what we want to do so long as you don't interfere on other people's identical rights, um, then, uh, then you, you, know, you, you develop your life project, you develop you know, what makes you happy. And, and so from a moral perspective, I think capitalism has a lot to offer uh, because it offers freedoms. And from a utilitarian perspective, um, you know, it's, it's more than evident. If you go back 200 years ago, and, and you see history, uh, capitalism has able to develop countries, societies, and individuals so much, no other economic system ever has been able to do what capitalism has done. So on both fronts, I would say capitalism has uh, a lot to offer, and I think that is what millennials today have to really understand. Hmm. I, I couldn't agree more. I think what you said was spot on, for sure. Um, and now I have to say, one of the things, um, obviously, what's, what's been going on, I don't think we could really ha uh, have this conversation without at least addressing uh, some of the things that are going on right now uh, with, with the coronavirus and everything. Um, so yeah. so what, what are your thoughts? What are your takes on this whole issue? Do you think the recovery will be long and drawn out or relatively short? Uh, do you feel like there are any policies that might help? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I you know, just... Um... Just this week, I had three interviews, two with CNN and one with a radio, uh, Univision radio, um, and and they all had the same question, you know, what in the world is going on? Um, so, so here's the thing. Um, we are going with a strategy that essentially is shut down. 
shut down the country, shut down the economy. Um, you know, stay in your house. I know that some people work online and so on, and that kind of keeps a little bit of the engine moving, but it's definitely a massive cut down of, of production. And if you do that for a week, it really hurts the economy. If you do it for two weeks, it hurts more. If we do it for a month, two months, or some people are saying we have to do it for three months, it's going to be massive. It's going to be a recession like we've never seen. You know, think Great Depression, think 1930s. That's the kind of problem we are going into uh, with this strategy. And notice that if the United States were was doing this alone, like we are the only, suppose that, it, you know, we, we were the only country that decided to just stay at home, shut down, um, it would be bad. Now, add to that, that all of other countries in the world are doing the same thing. Therefore, you know, there is very little trade now going on. There are restrictions every, everywhere. People cannot fly to hold meetings or to do things that, you know, kept the world moving. So that compounds and the problem becomes bigger. Now, I'm saying this with as much responsibility uh, for your listeners, because uh, this is a very sensitive issue. You know, this strategy of shutting down, staying at home has a benefit, of course, and the benefit is that we slow down um, the propagation of the virus, and as a result, we, you know, less people die. So there is definitely, uh, you know, it's understandable why we went with this strategy. But what I don't think we have cons fully considered yet is the economic cost of flattening the curve. A lot of people talk about we need to flatten the curve, but that has an economic cost. And the economic cost, again, if we shut down the world for a month or two, it's gonna be massive. I mean, recession is already here. A couple of days ago, Bank of America declared that recession had started in the United States, uh, lots of people are losing already their jobs. Some companies are going bankrupt. Um, and, and this is only going to get worse. So if we get to a point in which we have, you know, 6, 7, 10, 12% unemployment, um, that's going to be really painful uh, because well, what you do is you revert a lot of people back below the poverty line. And when you do that, you have, you know, you know what happens with poverty. I mean, this is, there is a lot of literature that shows this. When you have, when you're in poverty, uh, the, you know, probability of suicides increase, uh, child abuse, uh, in, in, um, what do you call intra-family, domestic, domestic violence, mm -hmm. uh, alcoholism. Uh, drug addiction, I mean, when you revert people back into poverty, all of these bad things happen. A lot of people are going to die, literally, because of poverty in many other countries, because of hunger, um, you know, uh, other diseases that are going to, to, to spread out. Uh, so uh, what you have is a situation in which if you, if you go with this strategy, stay at home, you save some lives, especially the elderly, many lives. But if you 
but 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 you have a recession and you have all of these problems that you know in the future is going to affect so many people. A lot of people are going to lose their hopes and dreams of escaping poverty and so on. So it's a delicate balance. I don't know where we should be, but I think we need to recognize that there is a trade-off. Mm, right. Um, and 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 I and I don't think a lot of people are talking about that. Right, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, do you think any of the policies? I'm sure you've been paying attention to the news and, and the policies they've been proposing. I know that the Fed's been cutting interest rates for for a while now. I don't know if that's done anything. Uh, yeah. And then they've been trying to uh, push policies such as trying to give every American like twelve hundred dollars and and yeah. uh, couples twenty. I think yeah. So I mean, they're they're trying to give people money. They're trying to. Uh, t- cut taxes for businesses. Do you think any of those policies, um, in, in particular, would be helpful, or do you think perhaps not? Uh, but you know, I, th- I think they will be helpful at, at, in the short run. But but in the long run, uh, you cannot just uh, print money and hope that things are going to continue normal. Uh, we are going to have to pay the cost uh, inevitably. Uh, you know, these kind of policies are going to help in the short run only. Uh, just to give you an idea of how bad this is, um, if you remember the recession in 2008, right, the big recession, mm-hmm. um, the Fed came out with all the available arsenal and the bazooka and decided to print $2.1 trillion, right? That was called quantitative easing. Mm. $2.1 trillion, okay? That's a lot of money, yeah? yeah. So if you think that the U.S. Uh, GDP is about $20 trillion, so, so $2.1 trillion printed by the Fed so to get us out of the big recession. Right. Well, guess how much money the Fed has now committed to print to fight coronavirus? Oh, $1.5 trillion. So we are not far below that um, uh, quantitative easing that we did in 2008. And when I see that, when I hear the Fed doing that, I'm thinking they know something that I don't know because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, you know, we're going to stay at home a couple of weeks and this is going to go away and, you know, fine. No, I think that what they're thinking is that this is going to be massive and we need to we do take an approach the way we did it in 2008 mm. so this is a scary uh, what this tells me is that it, it's going to be a painful painful recession wow jeez that that is scary for sure um I, i'm i'm sure we, we we talked about this a little bit earlier uh do you feel like like people will blame capitalism for this they already are. Um, you know, if, 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 if you are on the other side, if you're on the left, and uh, it's very difficult for you to uh, make make your point, right? In a society that is flourishing, in a society that has 3.6% unemployment rate, uh, in a society that is lifting people out of poverty, it's very difficult for you to be able to say, hey, you know, but give socialism a chance. Well, now when you see crises like this, uh, when you see problems like this, uh, here's your opportunity. And um, you say, well, you know, if um, we weren't doing trade uh, with other countries, if 
the globalization, whatever, uh, you'll find a way to blame it. But um, it is uh, a cheap shot. I mean, this is nobody could predict that this virus was going to appear. And and, and what they don't realize is that if anything is going to get us out of this hole, is capitalism again. Uh, if you know when this is over and we try to recover the economies, we're not going to be able to recover it with socialism. You know, we're going to have to recover with markets again uh, because those are the best instruments to create wealth. So if you want a fast recovery, you're going to have to use markets. You're going to have to use freedoms, and uh, capitalism is uh, is the is what's going to get us out. So, yeah. There you go. Uh, well, we're just approaching an hour right now. Um, so I, I think we've we've covered all the topics that we initially were were going to. Um, initially you agreed on discussing now is there anything else you wanted to bring up or anything else you wanted to talk about before we uh finished up today no uh, i, I want to say thank you very much uh, i think you guys uh, your group in particular at, at mercer is uh is doing great things uh it's the first time that i see a, a group so active and uh and so enthusiastic about uh discussing ideas uh, so i want to thank you uh and, and students for liberty for for what you're doing yeah and, and thank you for coming on and spending this time time with me and, and just talking about all these things i mean you've been incredibly generous generous um not only with just talking to me today but also your help with the organization and, and with you know spreading your message and being so supportive so we definitely appreciate that for sure uh and my pleasure yeah hopefully we can do this another time that'd be really really cool excellent thank you very much yeah of course Alright, um, so with that guys, uh, I want to thank y'all for listening and I hope you have a great day. Hope you, uh, ho- hope y'all stay inside and stay healthy. Um, uh, peace out guys.